Hello and welcome to These Are The Things, the podcast about podcasts and about all things online and streaming. I'm just going to get into it. No small talk again this week. The first thing I watched was actually through the Dublin Film Festival, which was so exciting to just hear the word festival anywhere. Unfortunately, it involved just watching something on a laptop and not actually sitting in a cinema with other people. But it is the documentary on Tina Turner, just simply named Tina. It is by HBO, so it is released in the States on the 27th of March. I'm not entirely sure about a release date in Europe for the UK and Ireland, but I know that most HBO documentaries are released through Sky Documentaries within at the max a month after its release in the States. And this is well worth a watch. I mean, I knew some of Tina Turner's life from the film in the mid-90s um, about her life with Ike Turner. I think it was called What's Love Got to Do With It. The book was called I, Tina. But uh, that focused mainly on that incredibly abusive relationship that she had with Ike Turner. And this brings us back to Tina's early life. She had She had a really tough, start in life. She always says I came from the cotton fields but that doesn't really tell the whole story. Her mother left her. She was basically left to raise herself with her older sisters and she met Ike Turner at the age of about, I think she was only 15 or 16 when she met him and he turned her life around to a certain extent in that, well a huge extent, she had a phenomenally successful career and the mark that Tina and Ike Turner left on music is is there for us all to see and that the music really comes alive and I'm actually just as I'm saying this I'm going to leave a link to their performance on the Edge Sullivan show because the power and the passion at which Tina sang and there was nobody like her and really there hasn't been anybody like her since because there was nothing soft and gentle there was nothing really feminine about the way that she presented herself on stage she was a very different character off stage but on stage there was a power and aggression and the way she danced and the way she moved it was just life enforcing and As I was watching this, I was just, I so wanted to see this on the big screen because of that, because the footage is almost 3D in the way that it it is presented. And it just brings back that energy and joy that you have when watching live performance. I I just had to delve into nonstop YouTube clips of Tina Turner after this. But the most educating part of this is not her life with Ike, which I think most of us know, but it was about picking herself up after her divorce from Ike Turner. And by the way, I'm not giving any spoilers in this. The the joy from this documentary is watching it unfold with the background of the music. So you will get a huge amount of enjoyment after watching this. But it tells the story of Tina leaving Ike, literally running from him in the middle of the night for safety with 36 cent in her pocket because he had always told her, you will leave the way you came. And she didn't really fight for anything after she left him. She 
left that night with 36 sandwich in her pocket and the only thing she fought for in their divorce proceedings was the name Turner because she knew that Ike could possibly hire another Tina for the Ike and Tina Turner um, group and make a success of that. But it would never have been the same because there is only one Tina. But her life fell apart and she had no career. No one would hire her after she left him. She had no rights to any of the music, so she had absolutely no way, absolutely no way of earning any money. And she moved in with friends and she started cleaning their home and started earning money through cleaning. Eventually, she started working in clubs again and started singing and started making money that way. And she was able to get a home and able to bring her children back into the fold. And that's really moving because given that Tina never had a mother herself, she worked very hard on being a very caring mother. But her life really turned around again for people of my generation who remembers the Tina Turner from the 80s and 90s was when she met Olivia Newton-John's manager who presented her with the song What's Love Got To Do With It, which she fought really hard not to record because she thought it was a terrible song. And it's really not that great. I mean, I really think the be her best music was in the 60s. But she became a phenomenal success and was much more successful in Europe than she was in the States. Sold out arenas that the Rolling Stones and Madonna and people like that, Michael Jackson, people, the biggest um, performers in the 80s. She was up there with them in the, in the 80s in Europe. I don't think she was quite as big in America. At least she always says that. But it's you know what, if you want to go back to remembering what life was like and listening to live performances at the moment, this documentary is the closest we're going to get to that. And I will put the link to the Ed Sullivan show in the show notes as well. Podcast this week, you know what, I, I thought I'd spoken about this and I don't think I have. And I think the reason I keep forgetting to mention it is because I assume that everybody has already listened to it. And if I'm already speaking to the converted, forgive me, but it's Sound Tracking by Edith Bowman. Now, it's an inspiration because it's one, so successful, but also Edith started this, I think back in 2017, before every dog and its cat had decided to do a podcast. Edith just got um, a microphone and set up, now she had great contacts because she'd worked in BBC for years but she's always had a huge interest in music as we know but also a great interest in cinema so she's combined the two and she went to speak to various film documentary filmmakers um, where they're on press junkets and most of them are so sick and tired of just talking about the one movie to have the opportunity of talking about music just lets them have a huge release and you find out so much more about these filmmakers. She speaks to everybody from Sam Mendes, Greta Gerwig, Todd Phillips, Bradley Cooper, Killian Murphy, Hugh Grant, just to name but a few. I'm not going to get into it because I think a lot of you will have already listened to it and if you haven't, just listen and it won't take long to convert you to fans. Um, 
oh, I'm just going to get this out of the way. I was going to leave this to the end, but why not? Um, Harry and Meghan documentary, our interview with Oprah. I think most people are completely and utterly sick of hearing about them. It has been non-stop news. But I did mention in my last podcast, so I, I can't let it go without, because I gave uh, my opinion on the trailers that we got from it. And it's interesting because I'm watching, the, I watched it in Ireland, so it had already been aired in the States and I, I didn't sleep that night. So I was kind of following it on Twitter and the shocking pieces of information that came out through that, mainly um, of Megan's suicidal thoughts and of the racism allegations. Really, really shocking um, uh, moments in the in the interview and but we had those throughout the day so it was kind of an interview I think we were almost spun out by the interview by the time we got to see it I'll just speak for myself I was spun out from the interview by the time we got to see it because um, there was just non-stop rolling news of it all day so it was aired, and I did say it was going to be aired in Ireland, which came as a shock, but as it turned out, it was money well spent for more tea because in a population of just 4 million people, over a million people watched it, which uh, is far more than per head of capita in um, the UK. Apparently 12 million people watched it there. And I think for the second hour, people actually switched off in the UK. Now, whether that was out of loyalty to the monarch or just the fact that it went on a bit um, and 17 million people watched it in the United States, which compared to the Michael Jackson interview that Oprah Winfrey did with him, which I think 68 million people tuned in for that, um, was a much lower um, rating. But then again, it was very different times and far less channels and streaming services where people could watch it back in the days following. So the the interview itself. Um, listen, I think I, I I'm wary of saying this because I think it's actually safer to stand up in the middle of Moscow Square and say something against Vladimir Putin than it is to say something against Oprah Winfrey. So as I just watch my back here, I will tell you what I think Oprah does wonderfully. If you want to see a conversation between two very famous people, just tune in to Oprah Winfrey because it's like sitting in and listening to two people over a cup of coffee, just having a real heart to heart. And Oprah, you imagine, just judging by her interviews, she's the kind of friend you go to when you know you're going to hear what you want to be told. She's going to validate everything you have to say. She's not going to challenge you in any way. And she's going to encourage you. And you're going to feel like you can open yourself up. And in some interviews with some people, that can be wonderful. And I think that worked really well here in the sense that Megan really opened up about her worries about mental health. I think she felt that she was in a safe environment and she could do that. Um, that moment where she just felt it was unsurvivable and during her pregnancy with Archie, 
she felt it was a safe place where she could talk about the racism that she endured within the royal family. She also felt that you could tell Oprah that she hadn't researched Harry's family. It's quite romantic. She just wanted to get to know him and his family. And she told her truth. And, or as it was also put, her lived experience. The problem with all of this, and it, it's been really interesting because I've been following this ad nauseum. Um, I've been following the coverage it's got in North America, between Canada and the United States, and also the coverage that it's got here in Ireland, which is interesting, to say the least, and uh, the co coverage that it's got in the UK. So, uh, which you would expect, there is a loyalty there towards the monarchy. Um, I, as I say, in case you don't know, depending on what part of the world you live in, I'm Irish. Uh, we don't pay taxes. We They're not part of um, our country, So, but we are saturated by the British media. So I understand how the British media is run. And also in conjunction with this, I'm hopping in, going over and back another uh, podcast which I will recommend is uh, WTF where Hugh Grant talks about how the British media coverage dealt with him, how damaging it was for him. I'm also watching this in the backdrop of the Murdoch Dynasty documentary and more recently the Britney Spears documentary to see how coverage in the United States works. So it's been interesting in coming at that from all of that but I'm hopping and jumping. Going back to how Oprah dealt with this, I think Meghan and Harry could have benefited a little bit more had Oprah been more challenging. We don't need a forensic interviewer in the type that Emily Maitlis was with Prince Andrew, who was interviewing somebody who is potentially a criminal. We need somebody who is gentle, who is warm, who lets them feel safe, but at the same time, they should have been challenged on certain things that they were saying. Because without backing up what they had to say, their truth, their lived experience really had no more facts or impact than the alternative facts that Donald Trump regularly presented to the world. I mean, for instance, we'll start with, I mean, I'm not even going to, go into the fact that Meghan didn't bother researching this family who she she is a feminist she left her successful job she moved continents for a man marrying into a 1200 year institution without googling them I I'm sorry that's not naive that's negligent and it should have been brought up rather than Oprah just raising an eyebrow um, to talk about the difficulties she started to feel was when she was pregnant with Archie, where they started talking about security and that it was implied that Archie would not get security and that they had several conversations because of the cover color conversations about concern over the cover colour of Archie's skin. 
the facts within what she presented are are so difficult to swallow because they just don't add up because anybody who takes a passing interest in the royal family over the years know that they were talking about slimming down the royal family as early as 1997 during the Tony Blair government because the other thing that they glanced over is that security for the royal family is not made at the decision of the monarch and certainly not Prince Charles it is actually made by um, MI5 and the British government so they they would have had no say whether Archie gets protection or not and when she said that all grandchildren of the monarch get security uh, Beatrice and Eugenie haven't had security since they turned 18 um, they it was decided in 1997 to the horror of Prince Andrew that they would never get while that he fought to keep their princess titles they would never get H or H even though they are grandchildren of the monarch uh, Zara Phillips and Peter Phillips do not have security and do not have titles so you know Oprah should have challenged that a little bit more maybe Meghan was told something else also why the hell didn't Harry sit in on this part of the story because surely her truth and her lived experience is his lived experience um then oh where do we go from there I mean there are so many confusing elements of this that I will be good Megan's uh, I mean it's it's so sad to hear somebody suffering in the way that she did and to feel suicidal and to feel worst of all that she couldn't get help now this is where it's really confusing and where Harry should have stood up and he said he was afraid how it would be viewed, which he comes from a very dysfunctional family. And we know from Diana's experience just how cold that experience is. And Fergie's experience and anybody else who's been in it. I mean, anyone who's watched The Crown knows, knows it's a pretty cold lifestyle to marry into or to be born into. The difficulty with Meghan not getting help is that Harry has spoken publicly about getting help. He had counselling when his mother died when he was 12 and he also had counselling in his late 20s which he has spoken very publicly about. In fact I mentioned the podcast he was in in the last episode. Um, also Charles has got help and Diana had truckloads of help coming in to help her with her eating disorders and she had everybody coming in with uh, from, from proper psychologists to people with Ouija boards. So the judgment, while it's there, it's up to you whether you care, whether you are not being judged. The help should have been there. So Megan should not have had to go to HR to get help. They quite rightly told her she's not a paid member of staff, so it wasn't their business to get her help. It was Harry's. And I'm sorry, Megan was out in the real world before this. She should have been able to get help. Again, a little bit of a follow-up question from Oprah could have cleared all of this up. I'm sure they have, can really justify why they felt they couldn't have got help. I think that was, you know what, it was just the main, it was the lack of follow-up questions were my main problem 
with it and the double standards. They mention that the royal family um, are in cahoots with the tabloids and they play off each other. That doesn't really surprise anyone. I, I mean, the tabloids have said that they don't have holiday parties with them. They don't know where that's coming from. But they do have um, drinks and uh, various things, kind of like not unlike what would go on in the White House for for the press. And nobody was better than Princess Diana for having various journalists on speed dial, like Richard Kay. She regularly had Piers Morgan, that name again, going to lunch. Um, there was no royal correspondent who didn't have lunch with Princess Diana when she wanted to feed them various elements of her side of the story and leak regularly. And I'm sorry, Harry and Meghan's relationship with Odie Scobie and the book that they released, they're regularly in talks with people from the media. And I'm sorry, can I... Do we all suffer from amnesia here? They didn't invite Oprah Winfrey, media tycoon, to their wedding, having just met her once. And they also, Meghan also had Gail King, Oprah's BFF, and sorry, now Meghan and Harry's mouthpiece. She was invited to Meghan's um, baby shower in America when Meghan didn't have a passport, but somehow managed to go to America on a private jet for a $200,000 baby share. A lot of the facts just didn't add up and we just needed a little bit of challenge, just challenge what they had to say. It would be nice. I'm sure they could back up everything they had to say, but this for me just left a lot more questions than it did answers. <sighs> from one dynasty to another, the next film that I watched. Just to watch another white person in complete privilege, um, I watched Senator, The Senator. It's actually a 2017 film, but it has literally just been released on Amazon Prime on the 19th of March. And it focuses on the Chappaquiddick disaster with Ted Kennedy in 1969, Again, it's, I, I can't give a spoiler here because I, it's like talking about Titanic. Most people know about the tragic death of Mary Jo Capetney and at a time in 1969 where Ted Kennedy had just suffered the loss of his brother Bobby a year before that and in 1963 his brother Jack. And it's interesting the way it focuses on that. You just see a man who is internalising everything and it's beautifully played by Jason Clark, who's an Australian actor and I actually think that it benefits from him being an outsider coming into this and interestingly enough apparently, uh, I just found this out, Chappaquiddick, I know, did not know this, happened in the days coming up to the moon landing, and this was significant because of the fact that JFK had predicted um, the moon landing and had worked um, alongside alongside NASA. But Jason Clark was born just a day before that, so all of the timing and significance of that is is relevant. 
but he doesn't focus too much on getting that Kennedy twang because I think sometimes that can be distracting but he looks very very like Ted Kennedy and he carries himself well but most of all what he does is he carries the burden and the weight of responsibility that was passed from Joe Jr. to Jack Kennedy to Bobby and now the last remaining son Ted Kennedy and for him to almost sabotage all of his privilege in that moment of horror and how you deal with that and the moral and how the morals and trying to carry the burden because no more than the royal family there's a lot of evidence out there to prove just how deeply flawed the Kennedy families are but how complex they are because of the amount of good that they do in the world but he we see the shadow of a man carrying that but the other interesting thing that I thought that they did really well in this in this film that you don't see in any other depiction of the Kennedys by the time it gets to JFK's inauguration Joe Kennedy has already suffered a stroke so he's just this shadow of a man in the background usually in in other depictions of the Kennedy story but in this he is the force he has lost his voice through the stroke but he is the person running this and we see him directing this cover-up that was done in those days. I'm not going to talk too much about what happens in that, but I will talk about the characters because I think within the movie we see we see the complexity of the Ted Kennedy that lived a life that didn't achieve what was set out for him to achieve in life. But in many ways he set out he achieved so much more, certainly in terms of legislation. He passed and was w much more successful than either of his brothers. He was the line of the Senate. But I was reminded of the eulogy that he gave at Bobby, Bobby Kennedy's funeral. And where he said, all of us will ultimately be judged. And in the years past, we'll sh we will surely judge ourselves. And in the back of Jason Clark's eyes you can see that he does judge himself he has to how do you lie with yourself knowing what happened that day in 1969 and be an empathetic character because I believe that he was empathetic you don't do the acts of kindness that you did in the world but carry the huge flaws that you carry throughout your life and be so I mean the lack of judgment is unbelievable and also it's interesting went to this in 2021 knowing the cancel society that we live in the cancel culture that we live in Ted Kennedy did this was attending this party left the party with this young woman who he left to drown in a car while his wife was at home and pregnant with his child. I mean, how the man slept at night and how his conscience dealt with that. I think there's a whole other movie in this. 
But it was interesting to watch this at the backdrop of the Meghan and Harry, incredibly privileged people who um, grew up in, in Ted's case, a very privileged white man who managed to live in a very privileged world and to carry the burdens that he carried, but also the things that were handed to him in life because of the privilege that he was born into. Anyway, the Oscars, there was Oscar nominations and I have never had as little interest and I'm sorry, I've kind of washed my hands of it as soon as I heard that Borat has been nominated. Apparently they're not going to do Zoom calls so every if you're going to attend the Oscars you're either going to be there in person or you're not going to um you're not going to be shown. So if you're nominated you better show up. Now I do know that in America they've got they've done really well with the vaccines. Apparently it, the they've passed the 100 million mark. So for those of us in Europe I can tell you we are very very jealous. Um so I other than that I've just been kind of swamped by the Harry and Meghan stuff and the sense of privilege. I hope they managed to survive. I know Harry's been cut off from his parents and he just did survive on his mother's 34 million that was really well invested and his great-grandmother's four million that he inherited that was also really well invested and they did manage to get the 100 million dollar deal with Netflix and the 25 million dollar deal with Spotify is good because you look at Harry's CV he um I think he got one GCSE in art that uh he cheated on so that's not bad going so um I know he was cut out of his father's allowance at the age tender age of just 36 and he had to survive by himself and thank goodness he got rent-free accommodation in California and they also paid for security but now he's to pay for all that by himself it's very sad um I'm going to leave you with that I had hoped to finish on a happy note but I'm sorry I'm just um oh sorry I almost forgot there was a GoFundMe page set up for Harry and Meghan to help pay for it there um 14 bedroom 16 bathroom um, home in California but unfortunately the cruel I mean the injustice that has been done to these poor people the cruel people at GoFundMe took down the page so I'm sorry if you'd like to donate towards their mortgage I, that opportunity is gone for you I'm afraid they're going to have to pay that by themselves um, I'm sorry I did want to leave on a happy note but um, I, I hope to come back with um, a happier note next week. Um, we will find a way of donating towards Harry and Meghan, the Harry and Meghan Fund. And as soon as I know, I will post it. All links are in the show notes. Follow me. I'm sorry, I'm breaking down with emotion here. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Goodbye.